I always find it interesting uh, when I'm watching two people that don't speak the same language talk. It, it, I always find it really interesting because typically it'll go something like this. There'll be you know, two people standing here. There'll be a, a non-English speaker and then potentially, in, in this fictitious scenario, there's a non-English speaker and an English speaker. And it would start off something like this, like, hey, do you, do you have a sec? Would you mind coming over and helping me move this? Because they would know what a sec is, right? But then the person over here, the, the response would typically be along the lines of, you know, blank stare and, and quizzical look. And so part two, or we would move on to the next level of communication, right? And that would be turning up the volume. Because, you know, it's not a matter of understanding. It's just a matter of hearing. So would you mind coming over here and helping me move this? Would be, the, that's part two of, of the communication tango that's now going on. And then, so now the, 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 the face is still quizzical, but then typically there'd be a response, right? In the language that the English speaker wouldn't understand. Perhaps if they yelled back, it would, it would help, right? We could yell back and forth. But usually this little dance goes on for a little bit before often this person sits there and the light comes on and goes, oh, we don't speak the same language. That's why they don't understand me. And from there we go into the acting it out stage. We start, we start to act it out. So it's like, would you help me move this from here to here, would you help me, right? That's, we, we get into the acting it out. The funny thing is though, is that often, two people who speak the same language can often have the same problem. We can, we can talk and, and say something over and over and over again, but until it actually gets demonstrated for us, until there's some sort of an illustration or object lesson, the truth of whatever that person is trying to convey or to communicate just doesn't sink in. It doesn't sink in. Today, millions, perhaps billions of people are all gathering together. They're followers of Jesus and they have one thing on their mind. The resurrection. If I say, he is risen, and you've been in the church for any length of time, you would say back to me, he is risen indeed. For those of you who are new to the church, that's what we say. When someone says he is risen, we repeat back, he is risen indeed. It's what we do. We, if we've been in the church at all, we get it. It's like, well, duh, of course we know that Jesus rose from the grave. It's, it's in the Bible. We just read it. We get it. For Jesus' early followers, though, this wasn't apparent. It, they didn't understand it right away. For most of them, or well, in fact, at the beginning, all of them, and for many people, perhaps even here today, this idea that God would come to earth, die, and then rise again for our sin to, to repair that relationship with God, that whole idea would be too good to be true. We have to ask the question, though, why is it that no one would believe that, particularly Jesus' followers at the beginning? And I would say that the reason they probably don't believe is the same reason that often today people don't believe why Jesus, or that Jesus rose from the grave, or why a lot of times people won't follow Jesus with their whole lives. 
or believe that the God of the universe would want intimate contact and relationship with them. For the same reason that we have all of these things going on, because we typically don't either believe things like that, we don't believe like things like that are going to happen, or we need to see it to believe it. We want some sort of proof. Now, the question is asked, proof of what? Well, proof that Jesus is Lord. And I'm not talking about just Lord of the land. I'm talking about capital L, Lord of everything. That he's God and that he came to earth and he did amazing things. And part of that was uh, living life in a way that shows us God, that puts God at the forefront of everything and gives us the opportunity to be able to follow after him. He told his followers what he was going to do, and then he did it on what has turned out to be the greatest day in human history. If you have your Bibles here or your phone, I ask you to please turn to John chapter 20. We're going to be in the New Testament, John chapter 20. John's the fourth book. For those of you who don't know, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you hit Acts, you've got to back that truck up. We're in verse, or chapter 20. We're going to be reading the first 20 verses. Today I'm not going to do a couple of things that you might expect for an Easter sermon. First, I'm not going to be giving reasons to believe that the resurrection happened. I did that last year, and, and it's good to do, and I'll, and I'll probably do it in future sermons, maybe on Easter, maybe not. These are good to know. These are good to have. And there will be, as we read through, there's going to be some reasons in there. But that's not the point of what I'm trying to get across today. And speaking of points, what I'm also not going to be doing is I'm not going to be giving you a a big idea or one big point to take away today. This is something also I normally do. But today, I think that there's going to be so many things as we read through the story that you can take with you because Jesus is awesome. And the fact that he rose from the grave is awesome. And what he did with his life is awesome. And so is what he can do in yours. All of these things are awesome. So I hope, though, that there's, as we read through the story and we go through this, there's going to be something that you take away, something that really speaks meaningfully to you. Maybe it's going to be Jesus is Lord. That will come true to you in a, in a new, new way. Or perhaps it'll be something along the lines of God wants intimate relationship with with me. He cares about me. Or perhaps it'll be you don't need to see to believe. Whatever it is, I hope that it's going to encourage you. I hope that you will be encouraged. And I also hope that you'll take whatever God speaks to you today and share it with somebody else who perhaps could use a little bit of encouragement. Because make no mistake, Jesus rising from the grave was the single greatest event in history. And it changed everything. And it could change your life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the story through all at once, and then I'm going to circle back 
And then we're going to go over it again. And this time, I'm going to adding a little bit of insight and some things. And I really want you to put yourself in the place of Jesus' early disciples. I want you to identify with them and, and try to think about their responses and reflect on some of their attitudes. Because, friends, we are, as people, we are prone to doubt. And I want you to see that there is every reason in the world to have hope for the future, but also hope for the life that we have right now. Because knowing that Jesus is Lord can actually make every day the greatest day. So John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They, did st they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani. And this means teacher. <laughs> Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, these thing, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So back to verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, this scene is, is really, really sad if, if you think about it. We, there's different accounts if you read different books in the Bible about this. So we know that Mary wasn't alone when she was there. And these women had gone to see Jesus, to see their Lord, to see the tomb that he was buried in. 
And they were sad about that. And if you put yourself in their, in their place, they were thinking, it wasn't supposed to end like this. This isn't how this story is supposed to go, is it? There's another uh, story that we tend to tell around Christmas time about the all-knowing one, and it's a story about setting things to right, about redemption, and talking, of course, about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And in, we, in our house, we have this little stuffed animal, Rudolph, and it's got, uh, if you push one of its, I don't know if with reindeer, if it's paw or hoof, is it hoof? You push one of his little hoofs, and his nose starts blinking, and it starts to sing the Rudolph song. It starts at the beginning, but then it ends with, and they never let poor Rudolph join in any reindeer games. And then that's it. So for anybody who doesn't know, according to this toy, the story ends with Rudolph being bullied by a bunch of, like, loser other reindeer and whatever, right? Like, that's it's a terrible story. It's super sad. But we know that that's not how that story goes, right? Because then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? And then all the reindeer loved him as they shouted out with glee, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, what are you going to do? You're going to go down in history, right? It's a, there's a happy ending there. There's something good. So for these ladies, as they come to this tomb, they're met with what they are perceiving as the end of a story. And it's not the way they think it's supposed to go. It's a sad ending. Because if the story ends with Jesus dead, well then what? To help you get a little bit of more of a visualization of what's going on, I wanted to set the garden scene a little bit for you. So particularly the tomb. So imagine uh, there's a, a, a nice lush garden and there's hills and cut out of one of the hills would be a cave. And this cave would be the tomb itself. Blocking the tomb would be what would be called a blocking stone. And this stone would either be sort of a squarish cork stone like that they would, they would put in front or it would be sort of a rolling disc. There's mixed reviews on, on which one it was. Either way, it would have been big, cumbersome and heavy. Security would have been pretty tight because uh, we know from reading history that the Emperor Claudius uh, had outlawed, or sorry, will outlaw tomb raiding, not the kind that Laura Croft likes, but the other kind. She, they're going to outlaw tomb raiding because it has become ubiquitous and uh, he actually makes it a capital crime. You get put to death if you do tomb raiding. They are also concerned that Jesus' body, there'll be some sort of a hoax. So not only do they have this massive stone, Pilate, the governor, sends out some guards to go and guard it. And not only that, but they take the stone and they put an extra seal over it. So this stone is not supposed to be going anywhere, but nevertheless, when these ladies show up, it's moved. Verse 2. So she, Mary, came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That's actually John talking about himself in the third person. This is the book of John, and he's the one writing it, and he re refers to himself in the third person. It's one of my favorite parts of, of this. So he, and he also refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. That's, it's awesome. And so she says, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So needless to say, this didn't start out as the greatest day. This was a, this was a pretty tough day. 
And you'll notice that nobody's believing that Jesus is risen from the grave at this point. What did Mary say? We don't know where they've put him. Like this implies that he's been taken, not that he has walked off or flown away or, or done something like that. He's, he's gone. So they assume that he hasn't left on his own. So if you're here today and you're skeptical about Jesus rising from the grave, you're in real good company because nobody believed that he rose from the grave. At this point, anyway, their first thought is that somebody stole the body. That's the thought. Because, and this is, I guess, the why of the question that looms in the background, why weren't they expecting this? Well, because they had a view of a savior or a person they'd started to believe was God, they had a view about him. Namely, that he, he wouldn't die. But then he did die. And so they had to change with their thinking. They had to change their belief system. And, and in that new belief system, in that immediate view, there was no room for him rising from the grave. This is really, really important for us to drill into our minds as we think about God and, and what he's capable of doing, because often we have a certain view or, or a particular views of how we think God is going to operate in most situations, right? We, we put God in a box and we say, this is how I know God's going to do it. But the problem with doing that is we don't leave room for typically the awesome thing that God is going to do that it completely blows us away and is unexpected. But maybe it's Jesus's fault. Maybe he didn't leave enough breadcrumbs along the trail for his followers to, to follow and, and then to therefore glean this truth. Maybe he, didn't, he wasn't clear enough to them in his teaching. Well, let's do a little uh, investigative work, shall we? Let's do, dig into our Bibles for a second and see if what Jesus had said about this. We're going to look at three different places. First is John 2. 18 to 22. So Jesus is talking to some of the Jewish leaders here. He's at the temple or the temple's in view. And he's just said some of the things that he's capable of. So the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Tell us how you can do this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. To which they replied, well, it's taken us 46 years to to build this temple and you think you're going to raise it again in three days like come on man like that's that's not going to happen so so that's pretty cryptic right pretty cryptic of jesus i i i don't know if i would have gotten that either john even goes on to say but the temple he had spoken of was his body so they looked later on after the resurrection and looked back and go, oh okay so that's what he was talking about after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. See, I don't think I would have figured that out either. So I, I think we can give them a pass. So how about Matthew 12, 39 to 40? So Jesus, again, is talking to some people. They're asking for a sign that he's the Messiah, that he's the one that's here to save them all. And so he answers them. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's up with the prophet Jonah? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Mm, see, I don't know. I don't think I would have gotten that either, right? I, I think that the disciples who can give him another pass. They 
probably wouldn't have understand that. Maybe that's not super clear. So let's look at Matthew 16, 21. And here what Matthew's doing is he's kind of giving us a montage. You know, in, in the movies where everything kind of goes fast and it's a bunch of scenes at once with some music. This is sort of a, he's giving a, an explanation of something. So verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain. So not cryptically talk about, but he explained to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It's kind of hard to misunderstand that one, right? Like, that one, I think, is, is pretty clear. Yet they managed to. They managed to misunderstand. They didn't have room for a little literal death and resurrection in their worldview. And it left them without hope once Jesus was dead. Yet, we can see that they were fiercely, fiercely loyal to him, and they were really curious about what happened to his body. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I just want you guys to know that when me and Peter were running, I outran him. I beat him to the tomb, just so you guys are aware. He bent over and looked at and at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Gotta love Peter. This guy, this is his MO, right? Very impetuous, just dove right in. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So now, if, if we're doing some, some good crime scene investigation, right? Like, this is the case of the missing Jesus. We need to be paying attention to the details that are coming up. And here, John provides us with a ton of details, and namely, the linens. We can, we can ask a question, like, would the linens be in that position? Would they still be there if, say, the grave was robbed? Is that something that would be true? Good way to, to answer that and to go back is, is John in, in chapter 19, he recorded the burial and I'm going to put up this a little bit here. And so Nicodemus, he, he helped wrap up Jesus. So he took linens and would have been nice linens to wrap up the body of Jesus. But the thing I, th I find really interesting is that he took 75 pounds of spices. Now, I don't know if he went to bulk barn or what the deal is, but 75 pounds, like... I go and I get, I don't even know how much spices cost, but it seems like it costs a lot for like a little thing like this. 75 pounds, so that would have been pretty expensive, right? Like any spice shoppers around here, do we got any spice dealers? It would have been probably pretty expensive, 75 pounds of them. So if you're going to break into a tomb, aren't you going to want to take the stuff that actually is worth something? I don't know if anybody wants to use that spice after or what it would be for, but nevertheless, this is some of the stuff that would be taken if we were to expect a robbed grave. But nevertheless, it's there. We can also look at another resurrection story. And that's where Jesus raises Lazarus, his friend from the dead. And when you look at that story, when Lazarus comes out, what's, what's he wearing? He's wearing his grave clothes still. So we start to put together a little bit of a picture of what happens when either a body is stolen, or someone's raised, but they're human. 
I know we're going to be reading it, we've already read it once and we'll get back to it again, but we're going to see that Jesus, when he appears to his disciples later on, how does he come in? He, he, he just comes through the wall. So we can presume then that Jesus, when he was raised, his resurrection body went through his grave clothes. They're still in the same spot. This is amazing. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, so I, I don't know if you guys caught it the first time, but I beat Peter to the, to the tomb, right? I, I won that race. He also went inside. And this is, these to me are like two of the, uh, or a couple of the greatest words in this passage. He saw and he believed. He saw and believed. And this is the first instance of John using this motif of seeing and believing. And of course, it's going to culminate later on when the disciples are all together and Thomas, otherwise known as Doubting Thomas, has already said, I ain't going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead until I see him with my two eyes and I can touch his wounds. Then I will see and believe. And then we know, if we were to read on further, that that very thing did happen. And there was seeing and believing. See, I have to say I can resonate with this idea. I have a healthy skepticism running through my body, and, and sometimes it's hard for me to always just believe everything I hear. For instance, uh, recently I came home, and, and Sarah's like, hey, Sat Caddy said a new word today. And I was like, really? Are you sure it wasn't like a fluke? Or, uh, you know, he was like, ra, 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 ma, ma, ta, ta, cha. And she said, mama, right? Like, are we sure it wasn't something like that? Because normally Sarah and I both have a pretty high threshold for what we will count a word, him saying a word, right? We're pretty scientific about it. It needs to be intentional and repeatable. Sometimes mama just wants to believe, right? And for me, I, I, I'm a little bit more, I, I need to see and believe it. John here, it's recorded that he saw the empty tomb and he saw the linens and that was enough. He believed. But notice it doesn't say remembered and believed. Verse 9. It's because they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They didn't get this from reading the Bible. So by John writing this, he's saying himself personally, but later on we're going to be able to, to find out, that the reason that the early disciples first believed was not because of the Old Testament. That would have been their Bible then. They wouldn't have had the New Testament coupled together. They didn't learn it first by reading the scriptures. They learned from experience, from seeing the risen Jesus. Now, in their defense, there, there's no verse. If you read through the Old Testament, you're not going to come across a verse that says, the Messiah is actually going to be the Son of God, and he's going to die and then rise again. Like There's, there's no just silver bullet verse in the Old Testament. But what they were able to do is they were able to go back and they were able to read passages like Isaiah 53. We know that is the, the suffering servant passage. And they were able to say, oh, they're talking about Jesus. That's a prophecy about Jesus. Or Peter, in a few weeks, a couple months, sorry, he's going to be preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he's going to cite, he's going to quote King David in Psalm 16. And in Psalm 16, he's going to say, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, 
the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And there Peter is attributing that to Jesus. So there's all kinds of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. They just weren't able to see it at first. Nor did everyone come to belief right away like John did. We see right away in verse 10 that the disciples went back to where they were staying. And there's no mention at all of any sort of rejoicing. They're not talking about that. And then even further, uh, verse 11, we can see that Mary probably came up afterwards. These, the two guys, they ran up and they checked things out and then they left. And then Mary now comes up, so more than likely she hadn't heard from John what he was thinking. And it records, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Uh, when I was in Bible college, uh, I remember there was this one time I was walking across the, the big lawn and I saw a girl across the way uh, from a class of mine. I needed to ask her a question about an assignment. So I went running after her and she went into a building and so I, I went in and I saw her down the hall and she'd gone into a room. So I ran down and just ran into the room. As soon as I walked in, there was another girl standing there and she looks at me and she's like, what are you doing here? And I thought, do, do I know her? Am I supposed to, maybe she thinks this is somebody else. I'm like, actually, I'm just here to talk to my friend. I'm going to, she's like, no, no, no. What are you doing in here? This is a girl's change room. So you see, the angels, they're not asking this question, why are you crying? Because they're, they're looking for, for information. They're, they're trying to make a point. It, this isn't the time to be crying anymore. The time for mourning is over. But she still hasn't gotten it yet. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around, saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. So perhaps it was the tears in her eyes, or, or perhaps this is another instance of someone standing with the truth right in front of them. And they just couldn't see it. She just couldn't see it. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Yes, Mary, who is it that you're looking for? He's a guy that, that you think you're looking for. He's not supposed to be here. How, how big is your world, Mary? Is it big enough that it can hold the idea that God came to earth and died for you and for everyone else and then rose, rose again? Is your world big enough to hold that? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell, him where you've put, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And there's just such a beautiful image here of someone saying another's name and knowing that person so well that all you have to do is hear your name spoken and you immediately know it. It's like getting that call from that long-lost friend or family member after 20 years, and all they have to do is say your name, and you instantly know 
that it's them. In chapter 10, Jesus, he told a story about the good shepherd. He talks about how the sheep know his voice and trust his voice. And that this shepherd will lay down his life for the good of the sheep. That is what a good shepherd does. So Mary knows her teacher's voice and she couldn't be more excited. (laughs) Jesus says, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So the picture here is Mary has rushed him and, and she's hugging him and maybe down on his feet clinging on to him because she's already lost him once and she's wondering, am I going to lose him again if I let go? Right now, Cadman, he's pretty taken with Mrs. Noah. He has this little ark toy and there's two of each animal and, and little Mr. and Mrs. Noah and he just likes to walk around with Mrs. Noah in his hand. It's very sweet, but sometimes obviously we have to take Mrs. Noah away from him and he gets this look on his face like, what are you doing? Are, like, is she going to come back? He's, he, he has this attachment to her. I know just from my own time uh, on the street or uh, when I've had the privilege to serve people that have been on the street, sometimes when you only have one or two possessions, they, they can become very precious to you. And, and when someone wants to take that away from you, it could be very, very difficult to let go. You want to you cling to that, or I know I've spoken to, to many women with, with their babies when they first are born, and when the baby gets taken to, to do the measurements or, or whatever it is it's doing, sometimes there can be that just quick thought, like, where, where is he or she going? Are they coming back? So Mary doesn't want to let Jesus go, but, but she has to. She has work that she needs to do. And besides, Jesus isn't going anywhere. Yet, he continues, Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord! And she told them that he had said these things to her. Friends, we should never ever forget what a hero Mary is in this story. Here's this woman who, if we've read her story before, we know that at one point she'd been demon-possessed. She had a terrible life, but she had been found. She had been freed. And she'd been loved by Jesus. He had given her everything. And in return, she decided to follow after him with her whole life. And when we read this story, we see a woman who is passionate about Jesus, who loves Jesus, who is willing to do anything for him. But not only that, she wants to take this news and she wants to do nothing more than share it with her friends. She is an encourager of the highest order. And now she knows that everything's changed. She, she has her proof, she's able to believe and know everything has changed, that she has really changed, that nothing will ever be the same again, that her life has been given true meaning beyond what she can give it. 
Tim Keller, a pastor down in the States, he writes, how can you be totally sure when you look at all the horrible stuff that has happened in your life and out in the world that someday God is going to make it all right? How can you just not, or not just hope so, but be absolutely sure that in spite of your own failures, God loves you and will never let you go? How can you know that when, the fa- when you face death, it is not the end? Only if you know that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore so will you. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, For fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came in and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I think overjoyed would probably be a bit of an understatement at that point. See friends, Easter is a reminder to us that no matter how dark or hopeless things may seem. In God's eyes, everything is moving to a glorious conclusion. Not only that, but the events of Easter can be the motivating force behind transformed lives. The reason is because the resurrected Jesus wants to bring you peace and joy. So when you think about Easter, what makes it special to you? What do you think about? Friends, today I want you to take whatever it is that has spoken to you today. I want, you, I want you to take that encouragement and joy of Mary. Or I want to take that impetuousness, that passion that John had outrunning Peter to the tomb. I want you to take that and I want you to use that in your own life as a means of encouragement. But I also want you to be able to share and help others understand just how great that this day really was. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, again, for this morning. We thank you so much for this great day that we are celebrating. Thank you that your son has given us hope and a new life in you. We pray now that we can keep this at the forefront of our minds as we go from here and that it is joy that we can um, show, display, even amidst the times of sorrow. We pray this in your name. Amen. Jesus, peace be with you. I hope you have a wonderful week and that today's service and, and this thoughts on the resurrection are forefront of your minds. Uh, please, though, stick around. There's some goodies. Carol's made sure that there's lots of fun stuff out there for you to partake in, so stick around. Uh, if you need prayer, please do that as well. Uh, come talk to me or to someone else. Uh, As always, there's lots of hugs and, and some laughter. So please do that. Otherwise, go and God be with you. Have a great week.